Welcome to the teaching ministry of Paseo del Rey Church in Chula Vista, California. And it, it's always a delight to be here. And uh, this is unique in uh, 39 years. Um, to be talking about Gary and April moving on somewhere is rather odd, isn't it? Um, if you're new, uh, bear with us while we do some family reminiscing and uh, we love each other kind of stuff. But it's uh, very, very special to me. Paseo del Rey has always been special and, and will continue to be that. Um, I really enjoyed last week's recording. I, I listened to your online session and it was really special to to listen in to several of your leaders, uh, just sharing from, from their heart. I, I have to say I got a special kick out of Matt. Matt seemed to kind of go on at the beginning about how he's not a speaker, he's nervous in front of this line, and then he proceeded to just eloquently speak to the subject of worship, um, and well done. They, they all did a great job, but I got a kick out of him saying, I'm not a speaker and I don't like to speak. Uh, and so we're calling you to be the next pastor. At, uh, <laughs> Just kidding. It was, it was a real blessing to do that. Uh, I'm going to give the uh, audiovisual folks a break today, and, and there's only one thing that I want them to put on the screen, and I want to bring, bring it up right now, and I want us to talk about this. Um, it's a tool I want to give you, um, and later in the message when I wrap up, it's, uh, it's an assignment that I'm going to give you. Um, I think today may be the only day of the week that you haven't already seen this a bunch of places. Has anybody already seen it? I mean, is there a FedEx truck out somewhere on Sunday? I think it's the one day of a, of a week we are not bombarded with this logo uh, pretty much everywhere we go. Trucks, packages, post office boxes, whatever else. But here's the question I'm just dying to ask. As old as this logo is, and as often as we see it in the course of a day, I want to know how many of you have never seen the white arrow between the E and the X. Okay, you can admit it. Let me see your hands if you have never seen the white arrow between the E and the X. Okay, that was about two-thirds, if not three-fourths of you. How many of you still don't see it? <laughs> uh, it's okay. We had some humble people admit about 30 seconds into this last service that they were just now getting it, okay? Um, well, this is, this is really helpful for me then, that so few of you knew that the centerpiece of the FedEx logo is the arrow that represents going with your package. This is one of the most ingeniously designed logos around, and it has served a purpose for many, many years. And it's going to serve a purpose for me today. We are very, very strange creatures in that, even though we're very bright and we have very complex brains, when we become very familiar with something, we stop seeing it. You all know the paint can that you sat in the middle of the kitchen floor and it just ended up kind of staying there while you stepped over it. This arrow between the E and the X represent something I want to bring to you today. And it's the fact that in some cases there are things around we don't see or there are things we see that we just become familiar with. And here's the odd thing about that. It applies to both good things and bad things. In other words, there are good things 
in our lives and in our church that we take for granted, and we just kind of stop seeing it. And we have to be reminded of those. On the other hand, there are oftentimes bad things or unhealthy things that are right in front of us, and we tend to not see those. I, I loved the, the great illustration that Doug provided last week when he acknowledged that in your bulletin are three words he didn't know were there. And they're words he believes in, and he could have told you what the three building stones are of this church's mission in that it's worship and discipleship and evangelism. But he was oblivious to the fact that they are printed on your bulletin and have been for, for some time. I'm, I think I've made peace with him about joking, but it's a great example of what I want to share with you today, is that there are things we just don't see that are right in front of us, or things that are right in front of us that we shouldn't be doing, and we've just become oblivious to that. Um, if you know Gary, if you're not a visitor here, it will not surprise you, even though we are very good friends and we meet often for coffee, that he wanted to meet specifically with me uh, a couple months ago to talk about this visit that I'm making today. And he had instructions for me. He had guidelines. I'm probably exaggerating, but these are some of the words I recall him hoping I could accomplish in my short visit with you. To inform you, instruct you, encourage you, admonish you, exhort you, warn you, challenge you, equip you, console you, shepherd you, forewarn you, and prepare you for what's coming. <laughs> and just to make sure I got it, he emailed me twice this week from Zambia. <laughs> he is an invested leader. I've never preached this sermon. In fact, I'm not sure I would even call this a sermon. This uh, juncture in time represents something that you've not gone through in 39 years. In fact, you've actually never gone through it. Gary and I were both called to, he was called here. It was a Bible study that had been planted by our district superintendent. And then Wally had a reputation for looking for a leader to hand his Bible study off to. And Gary was the guy who came here. Same year, 1978, same thing happened to me up in Cyprus in Orange County, California. So Gary and I were both picked by Wally and introduced to these home Bible studies that became churches. And I was there 12 years before taking on this role. Gary came here and is still here. So this is an unprecedented juncture in the road for this church. Um, what I've been asked to do today, and it's very easy for me to do, is to pull together some thoughts from what I've learned in my role. Now, just so you know, uh, the role I've been in for 27 years um, is that of overseeing what are now 200 churches. Part of that is pastoral transitions. Part of that is conflict intervention. Part of that is helping start new churches. Uh, but, but I've done a lot of this. <clears throat> and it has afforded me a front row seat into how God works in our churches and it was pretty easy for me to pull together just a few summary observations that I want to take you to Scripture to, to see, and, and I hope that the result is that you are encouraged. The first thing I want to bring to your attention that's going on right now and that you need to refocus on on a white arrow that maybe you've forgotten about is blatantly obvious, but I want to say it again. The church, universal, your church, Paseo del Rey, is the bride of Christ. He is its true head. He is your true shepherd. He is your true protector. He's your pastor. Now, I know you know that. But I fear that it's often a little bit like that white arrow that's right in front of us that we just kind of don't see. 
And we get caught up in the role that people play. And positions like, like pastor become one of those things that we become focused on and possibly just grow a little bit numb to what's really going on. Um, I, I don't have any other overheads for you, so I'm going to just take you to a few places. If you have your Bible, please make your way to the book of Ephesians. If you're new to the study of Scripture, it's in the, the New Testament, which is in the right one-third of your Bible, if you have an entire Old Testament, New Testament Bible. Ephesians is about halfway through the New Testament. It's written by Paul to a church that was planted in Ephesus. And I want to take you to chapter 5. In going to Ephesians 5, uh, I want to take you to a, a sample of, of one of my own examples of blindness. Um, and, and it's not a, a gross negligence thing. It's just a great example of how we start seeing things one way. One of the privileges I've had, even in my role as an overseer of, of churches, is to do a lot of weddings. I've been, for some reason, asked to do lots and lots of wedding ceremonies. And uh, even after a kind of a lull for a few years, in, in the last six months, I've just been being approached on almost a monthly basis by some young kids in their late 20s, early 30s getting married who were babies in the church in Cyprus. Or It's just weird to hear the stories of how kids who have maybe strayed a little bit from the Lord or from the church are getting married and they want the Lord to be back in the center of their family. And for some reason, I represent what they remember about a church they liked. And I've been doing weddings at least a couple a month. And I find myself... Uh, once again, going to what I call my default section of Scripture about weddings and, and marriage. Uh, Ephesians 5 to me, and specifically this section, if you have one of the Bibles with subheadings, it probably says instructions for Christian households, or it may say something like that. But it's kind of known as the marriage passage. And it's a passage I love to teach people. It's a passage I encourage uh, husbands and wives to study for the rest of their marriage. <laughs> Uh, because I think it's the place that has the most profound explanation of what goes on between a man and a woman that is so mysterious and incomprehensible and always will be until the millennial return of Christ. And, and I just keep going back there. But here's what I woke up to when I was thinking, what, what is it I've observed about the church that I think would be an encouragement to Paseo del Rey? And it was like the Lord took me to this passage and said, You've been teaching it through the filter of marriage, okay? And it's a fascinating passage because it explains that God created marriage as a tangible, earthly, visible expression of an invisible reality, and that's that reality of the relationship between Jesus and his church. And so I've, for, for 30 plus, 40 years, taught people, uh, you know, here's what the church is, but here's what your job is as a husband, and here's what your job is as a wife. And it was like, all of a sudden, I flipped it this week and realized, this is really about the church. It's not about marriage. I mean, marriage is kind of, um, it, it's a, a, an offshow, offthrow of this, but the real truth being taught here is the truth about what is true of the church. So I want you to see that. Uh, verse 21 starts with instructions to husband and wives to be submissive to each other. And then he be, in 22, he focuses on wives being submissive to their husbands as unto the Lord. But look what it gets to in verse 23. For or because the husband is the head of the wife. And here's what I underlined that I normally don't. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And he goes down in verse 25. And I've said this for years. Husbands, um, your job in life and in marriage is to do the role play of who Jesus is to his church. And I draw from what it teaches us here about who Jesus is to his church, and then I instruct husbands. And I, I still believe it. I've said this for years. Husbands, I believe you and I, 
are being expected by God on a daily basis to view our wives as something God has entrusted to us for whom we are responsible at some point in the future to present to him in a condition that reflects Christ-like care. Okay, I, I teach that, I believe that, I forget it way too often if you ask my wife. But bottom line, I believe that my responsibility to my wife, Dee Dee, a wife of 37 years, is to make it to the end of our lives and to be able to present her as a love offering to Jesus. And I believe he will look at her and in a moment of time be able to tell what I've done. And here's what he has expected me to do, to present her to him as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or blemish, holy and blameless, that I have made holy by the cleansing of the washing of the word of God and the Christ-like love in our marriage. So you get that? But here's what I haven't really taken the time lately to stop and think. The reason he says that is because that's what he's doing to the church every day. See, Jesus is not the force that is with you or some abstract, absent concept. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, went to the cross for you. And, and you can underline these pieces of this, where he loved the church, verse 25, and gave himself up for her in order to do these things. His death on the cross was past tense, but his ongoing interaction in your life as an individual and in your life corporately as a church is a very real, though invisible, presence every day of your lives. I can't emphasize the importance of that enough. This is Jesus' church. He died for you. He wants what is best for you, and he's not going to let people goof it up. That's really the bottom line. We get distracted into thinking that processes, search committees, elder boards, um, right and wrong perceptions, video interviews, these are all important. This is what we do and how we go about finding leaders. But let's never miss the underlying truth of what this is acting out. Jesus loves this church more than you or I ever will or could. I marvel. I think one of the things that has just blessed me beyond description, and, and I, I say I've got a front row seat to what God does in the church, and people often ask me, why are you not more cynical than you are after watching what people can do to goof churches up? And, and I'll tell you, in, in 27 years, I've seen just about everything. But just about when I think I've seen it all, people come up with a creative new way to try to kill the church or to divide it, or to damage it. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus always rescues it. <laughs> you know, I was thinking of a great example, the ocean, which is pretty close to us here. Uh, yeah, I mean, these are, these are rough days for the ocean, but have you ever just sat back and wondered, how is it that it just continues to purge itself? It, you know, it's bad, the world is polluted, but it just keeps purging itself. And that's just a small example of what I've seen God do in the church time and time again. And your church is not sick. But those who, we have some that are very, very sick. And over time, we see him heal it and rescue it in spite of the wisdom or lack of wisdom of people. So I, I, I just want to drive this home. Please make sure that you, you don't miss the white arrow in the middle of this equation, which is that this is Jesus's church. It, it's not a pastor's church. 
It's his church, and he wants it to be all that it possibly can be. Here's the second thing I thought that just as a, a no-brainer, I want you to know. And this has kind of evolved for me over the, over the last couple decades. And it has to do with the pivotal role uh, and the importance of a gift that God has given you, and that is your elders. Uh, in the early days of, of my role, my predecessor, Wally, was famous for uh, trumpeting his support of pastors. And that's a very valid thing. Wally was famous for always running to the defense of a pastor um, first, kind of under the assumption that pastors usually get a, a bad deal in conflict situations, and then he would broaden that out. I, I believe that as well. But as I have worked with churches over these last three decades, um, I have come to, to just be in awe of the role God puts elders in and how he uses them. And I want to take you to a couple of scriptures that kind of provide a, a, a backdrop for this and then tell you a, a, just a few stories of what I mean by that. Go with me to Acts. If you were in Ephesians, turn back to the left a few books and find the book of Acts. Uh, take, take it to chapter 14, if you will. I'm going to just refer to a few verses in Acts 14 and Acts 15. Um, Acts 14, verse 23, I, I think is kind of a symbolic verse. It's very instructional because, and again, I want to be sensitive to anybody that's kind of new to this. Um, most of the church as we've known it since the, the time of Christ was kind of launched on a bigger scale by the Apostle Paul and a few of his colleagues. And what we run into in chapter 14 is Paul and Barnabas, who were really the first church-planting missionaries sent out by the church, and they're just wrapping up what is often referred to as the first missionary journey. They've left their home church, and they've gone around, and they've, they've started several churches. Paul will end up going on three of these journeys, but this is the conclusion of the first one, and notice what it says in verse 23. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. So this is a strategy that he adopted that we have now started to just practice over and over again, and we kind of take this for granted. But uh, every church that he planted was different. Um, some of them were in very, very godless cultures and very violent places. Some of them were places he stayed for a long time, like two or three years. Other, other churches he planted, he was not there but for a few months. But it didn't matter because the way he set them up to then run themselves was to appoint these, these leaders called elders. And that has become the standard operational procedure in almost every New Testament church in the world. So God thought of this idea. He appoints elders, and then he uses elders to lead the church. If you turn just one chapter to the right to chapter 15, for example, it wasn't long before the church um, experienced conflict. And this is just part of church because people get together and, and are people. Well, the first problem that had the potential of killing the church had to do with how does the old now meet the new? And so churches started arguing over, well, what now that we're saved by, by faith in Christ alone, what, what do we do with all this historic traditional requirement of the law, for example, circumcision? And I, it's fascinating to me that, that that still is an arguing point. I saw that this morning a law was introduced in Denmark it's a bill that's going to be argued. They're going to require circumcision to be outlawed 
until a, a person is 18 years of old age and can make that decision for themselves. Isn't that interesting? That something as fundamental as circumcision is still being argued about? And it crosses spiritual lines. I'm glad that I didn't have the decision and don't have any memory of it. <laughs> it divided the church, though. Okay, so what do you do when you've got something so controversial that if it had gone one way, it would have killed the church as you and I know it. Well, what they did was that they appealed to not just local elders, because this thing was still too new. Uh, all they had were young elders that were brand new in their faith, so they appealed to older elders, and they took this to Jerusalem, where there were apostles and elders, and the story of chapter 15 is now history, and I refer to that as perhaps the best example of the need for a church to be connected to something outside of itself. There's kind of a fad right now among younger church planners to just be isolated and independent. And I guarantee if you live long enough, a church is going to run into a problem they can't solve themselves. And it is so cool to be able to go to some other group outside of you and have godly advice speak into this. And you'll see in Acts chapter 15, uh, let's see, verse 2, it says, Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some others to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. So that was one of the first examples of how elders provide a vital service in the church. Uh, flip on over to verse, uh, chapter 20, excuse me, uh, Acts chapter 20. Uh, I'm just pulling some examples of this early appearance of these people called elders and what we'll see here, I think, just represents the point I want to remind you of, the, the white arrow in your midst. Um, he's, he's saying goodbye to these elders. These were pro probably one of his favorite groups of elders. He really had a special love for the church in Ephesus. And uh, he, know, he knows he's not going to be seeing these men again. Uh, they've actually traveled some distance to meet him at the airport um, and just say goodbye there. And he says this in verse 28. He says, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. Uh, let me just share with you what I've seen through the years. Uh, elders, we actually have some churches where there are female elders, so I'm not referring to elders as only men, um, and that's for each church to decide. Uh, typically, it would be male elders in our churches, but, but that's not even the point. Uh, whether they're male or female, they are human beings who are sinners, okay? I've never met a perfect elder. I've never met a perfect elder. And elders are required to live to a certain standard, but it's not their merit that makes them who they are. You see, what makes an elder important is that God thought the idea up and he chooses to set them apart by the Holy Spirit who appoints them as overseers. See, the Spirit of God comes alongside an office and turns a normal human being <laughs> into his instrument of leadership, protection, and direction. And I could bore you. I could write a book of stories of how God uses normal human beings to lead churches into their future, out of trouble, uh, through division, through difficult seasons, calling of pastors, um, re-evaluation of core goals. I mean, whatever it is, my default position when I get a phone call, and believe it or not, I get quite a few, of trouble brewing in a church. It's just normal. Uh, we get calls all the time. 
And it could be a disgruntled staff member, it could be a disgruntled congregational member, it could be a disgruntled neighbor of a church nearby where the church is parking on their lawn. I mean, I get all kinds of calls. My default position is to go to the elders. First of all, I ask them, have you talked with the elders? And they typically haven't. And I said, God appointed your elders to solve this problem. Uh, sometimes they say we've done that. We've exhausted every avenue of working through the elders. Then, then we will typically get involved. And then even then, I would say 90% of the time, the answer is still going to be through the elders. But they've just needed help and encouragement. And I find myself often letting elders know, maybe for the first time, what their role is, that this is an anointed position God has given you. And he will give you wisdom. He will give you authority. He will give you grace and mercy and power to lead his church as an elder of the church. I can't say enough about that. You, as a church that I know pretty well, have been uniquely blessed with a godly set of elders. In the entire time I've known this church, I always get blessed in interacting with your elders. And just listening last week to the four that spoke up here, um, once again, I was reminded of the, of the gentle, godly spirit that resides in your elder leadership. You have godly people. I mean, it's one thing to have fighting elders. It's another thing to have unified, godly elders. You are blessed as a church. So I'm not downplaying the role of pastor. I want to talk about that next. But you have the historic tools needed to lead your church well. And you have been led well. So I just want to encourage you with that. As Gary leaves, he's part of a, of a much bigger picture and you've got those pieces in place. Let's move to the third obvious thing, that, and that's the role of pastors. This one's a little more mysterious. Uh, I'm, still, I'm still wrestling to understand how this equation all plays out. There, there is no question. Pastors are a unique piece of the puzzle of God's church. In fact, um, Ephesians 4, uh, we were there recently. Ephesians 4 describes pastors as one of the gifts God gives the church to equip you to do the work of ministry. So pastors go way back. They're unique creatures. Every church is different. Some churches have <clears throat> the man who is gifted as pastor, and he also serves as an elder. Uh, some churches have elders, and out of the elders emerges a pastor. And historically, at least in the American culture, uh, pastors become the individual who Paul refers to as the teaching elder worthy of his wages. So it's kind of how... Historically, culturally, pastors became uh, vocational leaders that are paid to do this full-time, whereas typically the rest of the elder board would be volunteers who work in the workplace, and they do this as lay leaders. So that's been the cultural norm. Uh, interestingly enough, Scripture doesn't say quite as much about the role of a pastor as it does about elders. So this has kind of been a thing that we feel and do as we go. But there's no question that a pastor plays a remarkably definitive role in, in who a church is. But let me, let me tell you a little bit how this, this mystery works. Um, you may know this, but I think it's, it's helpful to give you the very quick backdrop of how churches function. If you were to just start a church from scratch and not ask anybody's advice on how to run it, and you were to go to Scripture for an example... Uh, no matter what name you gave it, there's only three choices you can come up with of how to run a church. Historically, they've come under three labels, and let me just remind you of what they are, Episcopalian, Presbyterian, and Congregational. Okay, you think you know some of these words, you're going to learn something new today. Episcopalian is a reference to running a church through one individual who is supremely authoritative. Okay, the Catholic Church is a great example. The Pope is supremely authoritative. 
um, on local levels. The priest is, is supremely authoritative. He can make decisions and only be checked by the superior above him. You got that? Believe it or not, the Catholic Church is not the only one that's Episcopalian, and neither are Episcopalian. Calvary chapels are Episcopalian governments. Did you know that? Uh, most Pentecostal churches are Episcopalian. And, and all that means is that there's usually one individual that has complete authority to do whatever they want. Chuck Smith could do whatever he want. Uh, fortunately, he was a godly man, and he answered only to God, and he led well. It's biblical. And then local Calvary Church pastors can do what they want. They can buy property. They can fire and hire staff. They don't have to ask elder boards. They don't have to ask anybody. That's Episcopalian, okay? And it's biblical. Second form is Presbyterian, which simply means a group of people have authority. And uh, groups like Methodists, Lutherans, Presbyterians are examples of that. Sometimes the group is a local board of elders who don't have to answer to you. Uh, I've worked with many churches who have elder boards who don't have to ask your approval to do anything. They can hire and fire pastors. They can buy and sell property. Um, sometimes the, the, the group is regional, like a synod or a presbytery, but that's Presbyterian government. Our form of government, which we have elected to use, and it's not necessarily better or worse than the others, is congregational government. And there are plenty of examples of that in Scripture. And we define it this way. Congregational government is that form of government whereby the highest authority under Christ in the local church resides in, and I love this phrase, the corporate understanding of the mind of Christ. That means there has to be a process by which you, the membership of the church, have final authority in calling your leaders, making major decisions. In other words, your elders are accountable to you. Sometimes I'm pulled in to make sure that there is a vehicle of holding leaders accountable. But ultimately, this is your process. Do you get the difference in that? Now, here's why I bring that all up. The role of a pastor in relationship to a board of elders and to a staff and to you is a very delicate dance. There is no precise formula that I could give you that will assure the new leader of his freedom of choice, <laughs> his, who he answers to. In fact, where things get really delicate, you know, in the other groups, I've often wished that we were Presbyterian or Episcopalian for a day because there are people I'd love to be able to just go fire <laughs> or appoint, and it would be a little bit easier. Bottom line, I like our procedure better uh, because when we're able to maintain a balance of trust, there is, I, I think, more of a sense of God moving collectively through his body. And, and I love that. And for the most part, it works pretty well. But it does get a little dicey. Um, there can be personality issues. See, what you're coming off of, and I'm, I'm just trying to be brutally honest with you about the white arrow you probably haven't seen. You've grown very accustomed to an equilibrium that exists between a 39-year pastor his staff, and his board of elders. It's, there's an equilibrium here that has performed well. We're moving a piece of that now, and you're going to get a new person, and I guarantee it's going to take some time to do the dance and figure out who's leading who here, <laughs> uh, who's holding who accountable, who's teaching who, who's discipling who, who's affecting vision or course alterations. Do you see where that gets a little weird? 
And it's one of the downsides of congregational government because nobody can just say this is the way it is. It just doesn't work that way. Sometimes they get terribly out of balance. This is the worst spring on record in my 28 years. Uh, we had three churches fire their pastor the week before Easter. I kid you not. Uh, we knew these troubles were brewing. Um, and these things all happen when there is, for some reason, an erosion of trust. You know, somewhere a leader, a, a lead pastor loses the trust of his staff, or the board of elders lose the trust and, and acceptance of the, the lead pastor. I mean, every one of the three stories had different factors going on. But the point was there was an erosion of trust, and it escalated, and nothing we did in any of these places could hold this off until after Easter. And so in three of these cases, we were scrambling like crazy just to try to keep some semblance of normalcy as these churches went into the Easter weekend. And we're still picking up the pieces. So I'm just telling you, I have a lot of experience over how this balance can get broken. And as you enter into a new season with a new lead pastor, <clears throat> you're going to need to give grace and patience and time to your leaders to get to know one another and, and kind of figure out you know, how do we learn to trust each other? Um, last thing I want to give to you is perhaps the most practical, and again, it's flagrantly, blatantly obvious, but I need to say it, and it's simply this. No church is perfectly balanced or healthy. There's just no such thing. I didn't say this in the first service, but, but you know, the mission of the church is pretty straightforward. We've been given the Great Commission you know, however you want to phrase that, we're here to get to know God better and make him known. We're here to know Christ and make him known. We're here to, to make disciples of all. I mean, you can, you can say it any way you want, but basically the church has a mission that we call the true north of the compass. What gets really complicated is that there are a lot of aspects of how we do that. Uh, you have three words at the top of your bulletin, and they're good words, but they're not the only words. <laughs> Uh, we, we have churches that feel called exclusively to a ministry of prayer. We have churches that feel called exclusively to uh, being the, the, the incarnation of Christ to the homeless and the poor and the afflicted and the orphan and the widow. Those are all valid roles the church plays in our Great Commission. And I could list 30 things that are all valid ministries of the, of the church, okay? Where it gets hard is for a, a church leadership team to discern the primary focus of your church, because you can't do it all. You can't do it all. It is hard to do that. And no church stays, per there's no such thing as perfect balance. In fact, just about the time you get balanced, you're going to go out of balance. And part of the trick is discerning what God wants to do next. Just pull this up as obvious. If you have a table of contents, if you don't know what books are in the New Testament, consider this. Half of the New Testament are letters Paul wrote to seven different churches. And you could probably rattle them off. They're the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossus, the church in Thessalonica. We can spend half of our lives studying those letters. Why? Because they were unique letters written to specific churches that had strengths and weaknesses. And some scholars make a, a living out of just trying to discern what those points of emphasis are. Galatia, for example, had kind of fallen victim to a very legalistic way of thinking. So Paul was having to address the imbalance toward legalism to move them back toward a rediscovery of grace. And we could go on and say every one of these churches had an imbalance. 
And I, I don't want to insult you, but I can guarantee you have some imbalances. There are some things you do extremely well, and there are some things that you've forgotten that even need to be done. And that's okay. <laughs> that's who you are. You know that that's how marriages work. That's why we go to see marriage counselors periodically, because we get out of balance. We lose sight of things. We take things for granted. Uh, consider this, and this is the last place I'll have you turn, Revelation 20, last book of the Bible. Um, not Revelation 20. Uh, just Revelation 2 will do. Book of Revelation, uh, last book written in the Bible because it was written three to four decades after the first churches had been planted, which makes this a fascinating section in chapter 2. Um, also seven churches being directed to, and there are some similar, some different. Uh, the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Here's what's interesting about Revelation 2. Uh, people argue about, are these symbolic and metaphoric? Do they represent eras of the church? Do they represent specific churches that are typical of other kinds of churches? Um, I, I tend to believe that this was Jesus prophetically speaking to John when he was in exile, making observations about how the church was doing, and he picked seven prototypical churches that have been instructive to us for 2,000 years now. So each one of these churches represent churches becoming imbalanced over just a few decades and needing to be course corrected, okay? And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just point out some of the obvious. Ephesus, one of Paul's favorite churches, perhaps the model of, I mean, when you read the book of Ephesians, you see the lofty theology that he was able to speak to these people because they were so mature and hungry learners. And yet by the time we get to chapter two of Revelation, Jesus says, yeah, you've done all this well, but here, here's a problem I now have with you. Here's your imbalance. You've lost your first love. And thus we see one typical problem churches fall into, and I want to elaborate on that. Pergamum, chapter 2, verse 14, he says, you've done this well, nevertheless I have a few things against you, and he instructs them. Thyatira, chapter 2, verse 18, uh, he says, nevertheless I have these things against you. This is Jesus speaking specifically to churches, saying, I know that you've done this well, I know you've done this well, but we're not done. You need to course correct. So he says to Sardis in verse 2, they don't get much compliment, at, by the way, uh, he says, you're dead. <laughs> um, and the, the last nail is almost in the coffin. While there's time, please repent and wake up or else you're done. Um, Philadelphia, he doesn't rebuke them. He just says, don't give up. They're doing well. <laughs> Verse 11, he says, hang on. And I assure you, we have a lot of churches that need to be reminded it's worth hanging on a little longer if that's all that they need to be told. Laodicea uh, is perhaps the worst. He says, you're, you make me sick. You've become so indifferent. You're neither hot nor cold. You're embarrassing to me either way. I mean, those are harsh words. I, I, I get that. But I want you to get the big picture here that if Jesus were to audibly speak to Paseo del Rey today in love and truth, there would be something he's not happy with. And then he would say, let's work on this. Maybe to say he's not happy with is too strong. Um, he, he wants course correction. Because you've been doing this well, now let's, let's tilt the wheel a little bit this way and, and balance this out. I want to give an example of, of how hard it is to change just in closing, but that it can happen. In fact, I would, I would go on record to say the most effective tool I have seen God use to help churches change correction a little bit is by new pastors transitioning it. And, and it's understandable why. 
Gary's been here 39 years. Your elders work day and night loving you and serving you. It's no surprise that they don't see a white arrow in the middle of the FedEx logo. You just become so busy doing what you do in your sphere of awareness, you can't possibly have the 30,000-foot view of what's going on. And I think that's typically the reason why outside pastors coming in are the most effective way churches can make slight course corrections. We don't want complete course corrections, okay? <laughs> um, our church in Fullerton called a young guy that wooed everybody with his speaking abilities, and I'll go on record to say he's a knucklehead. And he came in and tried to change course correction 180 degrees in 12 months. He actually publicly used the word sacred cows we need to, to slaughter. And he, he went about doing that. And the church almost bled to death. The cows <laughs> needed to be killed one at a time over about 15 years, okay? Uh, there's a, that's a terrible way to lead. It's got to be done with maturity and, and with wisdom. Let me, let me tell you the story of my... Uh, the church that I had a privilege of leading. <clears throat> it's a small world, and I just learned the lady, you. What's your name? Pat and I found out that we know this, this person, okay? Church I led and helped grow. I, I was trying to keep it balanced, and by about year seven, I realized that my dream of us being an evangelistic church leading unsaved people to Christ from our community was not happening. I mean, we went, a, we went a whole year and a half once without seeing a single non-believer come to faith in Christ. And I, and I was just panic-stricken. What are we doing wrong? Nothing that we were doing was, well, we had been teaching the scriptures. We had been attracting people that were wounded from churches that didn't believe in the scripture. We, we had a lot of good stuff going on. We became a nurturing, healing place. And we grew, but we grew by regathering wounded believers, and we stopped becoming an outreach church. So for the last five or six years I was there, we were working hard to course correct, unsuccessfully. And when I left there in 1990, my heart was broken that we were imbalanced in that way. And I've been praying for them ever since. They went through two more pastors, very good men who stayed long periods of time and led well, but they didn't make the course correction. They couldn't until a mutual friend of ours, Mike McKay, was called down from Los Gatos, and it's been about nine years. Do you remember? Feels like about eight or nine years he's been there, or maybe more. Under his leadership, the, the wheel got turned to the point now that they are known as a, a place of salvation. <laughs> I mean, they have become a beacon of light in the community of Cyprus. They're affecting politics. They're doing social outreach. They're seeing people come to Christ and be baptized every Sunday. And, and that took 28 years for that imbalance to become corrected. And, and I couldn't be happier that it has happened. So I want to put in perspective for you that we're not expecting anybody to come in here and alter your course correction by 45 degrees in any short period of time. But I guarantee there is some course correction needed. And it's not even my job to say what that is. Nancy Moore, I think, has been a little helpful in having outside eyes that can help you see you're doing this so well but let's look for somebody that can help, help you tilt this way just a little bit. And see, that's the nature of a leader. And I think you understand that that means it's going to be uncomfortable at times, especially as he learns to do the dance of trust. Let me just put this in perspective. Gary leaving after 39 years is extremely rare. This almost never happens. The only other example I've got is John Tabay, who pastored Calvary Church of Placentia for 40 years. He was my wife's pastor. 
He was succeeded by his son, by the way, and, and it's actually going pretty well. In just my experience, these churches, 14 in number, have changed pastors in the last two years, and it is going extremely well. I have recent stories of how well it is going. I'm not going to tell you the stories that are not going well, okay? Uh, Fullerton has God's man who is rescuing that train wreck. Darren McWaters is God's <laughs> appointed leader for this difficult season in their lives. Uh, Indian Wells, I was just with Ricky Jenkins. Um, white community you would think of, upper middle class, if not upper class, Indian Wells, La Quinta. Their new pastor of four months is Ricky Jenkins, African-American, PhD in historic theology, and he has taken the desert community by storm. Um, and it, it's an exciting story. I won't go into that much detail for all these. Prescott, Bullhead City, Red Mountain Church of, Ma of East Mesa, Mountain Vista Church of West Mesa, Hope Church of Albuquerque, Grace Arroyo Grande, Las Cruces, Placentia Calvary is in his third or fourth year now, Fresno, Turlock, San Jose, Redlands. Those are just churches I've worked with. Uh, if you count my staff, we've seen turnovers of lead pastor positions in almost 50 churches. 25% of our churches have changed lead pastor positions in the last three years. So what you're undergoing is not unnormal or unusual for the church. It's just very uncomfortable. <laughs> but the church is not about a person. And I know Gary would be the first one to tell you that. So I want to bring the, the FedEx logo up again. Would you, uh, if you, could you pull that up? Uh, here's my, my assignment for you. Uh, I want you to use this as a reminder for the next three or four weeks, next three or four months. Every time you see a FedEx truck or package or mailbox, I want you to remember what I'm asking you to do right now. Uh, I want you to focus on, what do you see up there? Does everybody see the white arrow? I want to make sure. <laughs> uh, I want you to focus on the white arrow. And I want you to just pray a prayer. Lord, help me see what I don't see. Help my church see what it doesn't see. Give us fresh eyes. Help our new pastor see what he needs to see. And give us wisdom as we move forward into the best is yet to come. I love your bulletin logo on the front. The, the best is yet to come. And that will bless Gary, I promise you. It will not insult him. <laughs> that, that will make his life worth living to know that the foundation he has poured his life into can now be built upon with someone else's leadership. Would you join me in prayer, Lord? Thanks for this congregation. Thank you for the testimony that, that it is to your provision, to your grace, to your power, uh, to your love for us, and your love for the lost. Thank you for their wisdom. Thank you for the leadership. Thank you for Gary and April. How do we thank you enough for the gift that they have been and are to this church? But Lord, I, I pray that in coming days, you would continue to bless the search committee. Lord, I pray you would give them a story. Lord, give them an assurance of what you're asking them to do, who you're asking them to call. Uh, for the man and wife who are coming to this church, Lord, be working powerfully in their inner spirit, uh, in their very soul, that they would sense the resonance that they have uh, with this ministry that you're calling them to. And Lord, we look forward to what comes. Give us courage, give us patience, um, and Lord, give us a willingness to flex as the the time comes and the need comes. I pray in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.